And I want to tell you a story, and this is the story I'm going to tell you. It's about uh, how I went out to lunch, and I went out to lunch with my friend and his two-year-old son. I did this last week. And when I went out to lunch with my, uh, my friend and his two-year-old son, uh, we were having a great time. And then my friend said, he said, hey, will you watch my son while I go to the bathroom? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so he walked away, and he, he went to the bathroom. And then his two-year-old was just me and his two-year-old son, right? And I saw the, the face. You know the face, <laughs> right? Like the face that says, oh, no. I'm all alone with this weird, weird person, right? The face of the two-year-old. And, and I said, oh my gosh. And so I was like, oh, this kid, he might not make it. And so I said, um, I said, all right. I said, well, your dad just went to the bathroom. He's coming right back. Uh, but that really didn't work, because I don't think he understood it, really, that I was saying your dad went to the bathroom. He's coming right back. And so I saw the lip. You know the lip? But it's like the um, And I was like, oh, oh no, this, this child's going to cry. And so I said, I, I know what I need to do. And so I said, hey, I want to tell you about black holes. And I said, black holes are amazing. And in fact, I know the scientist who's measuring black holes right now. And she's measuring them using photons. And I was like, isn't that incredible? And I was like, she's actually getting really close to discovering what's in black holes. It's going to fundamentally alter the way we think about our universe. And then that child started crying. <laughs> and I was disappointed. I said, you know, here I am giving this kid just really great information, like stuff that really matters, that, that changes the way we think about society and the universe, and this kid's going to cry? I was like, oh. So my friend gets back, and I was like, your son. No, I didn't say that. I said, thank God you're back. Because that child, he didn't stop crying until I said, I, I, I didn't work with the black holes. I had to say, hey, look, Paw Patrol, and that's what got him to stop, right, was saying, does anybody know Paw Patrol? Yeah, yeah, me, me, yeah, okay. So anyway, so he came back, stopped crying, and, and my friend said, how'd it go? And I said, well, your son doesn't appreciate black holes at all, but otherwise it went well, you know, which gets me to Deuteronomy 4. Seamless transition, am I right? <laughs> Let's read about it. It says, and when you look up at the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you out and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. I'm going to translate for you this passage real quick. Basically what God is saying is he's saying, listen, I know some of you worship the sun and the moon and the stars. Those gods are okay. And in fact, I've given those gods to other nations to worship. But you are going to worship me. That's what is being said in this passage. Which means, if we were to take the Bible in the way that we always look at the Bible, which is face value, that means that we're dealing with polytheism. That means that our God and the people who wrote our scriptures are okay with polytheism. Now, you might be saying, I don't know about this, and I don't know about this, right? But once again, in our scriptures, we talk about this other god named Baal. Anybody ever hear of Baal? Yeah, if you grew up in the church, you probably did. And this other god, Baal, he rides around on storm clouds, right? And so the Israelites, they, they knew that there was more than just one God, and they knew it to the point that because Baal rides around on storm clouds, in the book of Psalms it says, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, right? Because if their God rides on the clouds, our God rides on the clouds too, okay? So if you are going to take our scriptures at face value, if you're going to take our scriptures and say, there it is, there's the answer I'm looking for, what we have to reckon with, what we have to contend with, is that polytheism is real, we have to reckon with the fact that there are more gods than just our God. Or, or we take a look at it in 10,000 B.C. time, right? And in 10,000 B.C., 
did people know that the sun and the stars were balls of gas, right? With light that was literally millions of light years away. Did people know that? Back in those times, in 10,000 BC, did they know that the moon was just something that was like pulled in by Earth's gravitational pull and like revolving around the Earth? They did not know that. In those times, they believed that those things were gods. And so instead of God coming down and trying to explain, like, actually, no, that's just refracted light and dying balls of gas, what God says is that there are other gods. Because if you tried to explain the scientific and physical realities of the sun and moon and stars in 10,000 BC, it might be like explaining black holes and photons to a two-year-old. Did you see what I did there? Yes. Y'all, nice. that took me a long time. But I did it, and I don't even think it was worth it. <laughs> but we're going somewhere with this, I promise. Because what we're actually doing... Roxy, please. You just got baptized. That's the last thing you should be doing. Um, but thank you. Um, but here's the thing. We are going somewhere with this because what we talk about when we talk about Scripture is we talk about how Scripture gives us answers, right? It's the plain reading and it gives us answers. We say it's in the Bible, there it is, and we go by that, right? That's what we do. And that would be a, a reading um, that isn't actually godly at all. It's not theological at all. It's not biblical at all. But yet, people say about our church, they say, you know what, church, you don't do some of the things that the Bible says to do. You affirm the LGBTQI community. Why? They'll say stuff like that. And they'll say, the Bible plainly says, the Bible plainly says that, that same-sex uh, you know, acts are, are abominations. And I go, it absolutely does. You're right. Anybody remember this woman from a couple weeks ago, this, this councilwoman in Michigan? She said that she didn't want mixed ethnicity couples in her town. Did you all hear about this? Yeah. And when they said why, she said, well, because it's unbiblical. And you know what? She's right. It is unbiblical to, be mixed eth to, to have mixed eth ethnicity couples. So my wife and I are living in terrible sin right now. <laughs> because the Bible talks about a couple different stories where, you know, God gets upset with that. He says it weakens, up, it weakens nations, okay? It says that women should not be leaders. It says they shouldn't be teachers. It says that they should be silent. And so all the time people say, well, you're going down a slippery slope because you have women leaders and teachers and preachers and all the rest. Shouldn't they be silent? The Bible says so. And then my favorite one, you know what else the Bible clearly says? This one is so good that I am going to read it. The Bible clearly says, and i got to find it. I can't find it. Oh, here it is. This is good. It clearly says what to do with unruly teenagers. Anybody got an unruly teenager out there? Here's what it says. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of the town, and they shall say to the elders, The son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. That is what you do with an unruly teenager. That's what the Bible tells you. Right? And so when we look to the Bible for answers, right? When we look at the Bible for, for answers, what we're actually doing, if we're just taking it at face value, is we're doing things that actually get in the way of what God is up to in our world. So what do we do with this? Because the Bible does say some things. Well, here's the deal. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to read it twice so that we get it. On the most basic level, God can only be known through our human experience. Our God must, be, uh, must condescend to our humanity in order to be understood. So what I'm saying here is I'm saying that God is so amazing, the infinite and unimaginable stoops down into our context and culture to show us how God is at work in our lives, moving us along an arc towards better love, more inclusive love, affirmation, and all the other good things, grace, everything else. Our God is moving on an arc towards that greater love, right? 
We think it's so important that we follow this arc, that we see God working on our context and culture, that we say this. We say we're more interested in asking questions around the Bible rather than having the right answers of the Bible. This is the full thing that we say for our value of humility. Acknowledging the limits of our own wisdom, we create space for the Spirit of Christ to call us toward an ever-evolving and loving way of life. We believe that the divine mystery of the Trinity calls us to lovingly ask better questions rather than searching for and claiming to have all the right answers. Why is this so important that we made it a value? I'm going to keep talking about why it's so important that we made it a value. Because like I just finished saying, there are way too many times where people have used the Bible to exclude, to hurt, to shame, to be violent, and even to kill. How do we reconcile that? How do we still say that the Bible is a God-inspired thing when all those things happen? Well, let's talk about the humility that we have. Let's talk about what I like to call courageous evolution. So when people call us and they say to our church, Church, you're going down that slippery slope because the Bible clearly says and you're not doing what the Bible clearly says. How do you answer to going down that slippery slope? I say it's easy. We're more than happy to go down that slippery slope because the Bible tells us to go down that slippery slope. You see, throughout the thousands of years of Scripture, what we see every single time is we see God working within a context in a culture, within a cultural lens, within a traditional lens, and working in that time period to move people along. And we see it in our Bible all the time. I'll give you an example. How many people have ever heard of Jonah? Good, good. Jonah's, he's all right. So here's the thing about Jonah. Jonah had to go preach to this city called Nineveh. Nineveh was a really terrible city. You know what Nineveh did to Israel? They starved them out. That's a terrible thing to do, right? That's, that's torturous. Like to starve people out. You're basically uh, making sure that people can't eat for, for weeks, months, until they die, right? But that's okay, because you know what the Bible says and had been saying for years upon years upon years? It says that God smites God's enemies, Right? And Nineveh was one of God's enemies, which means God is smiting Nineveh. Right? That's what's going to happen. In fact, we read our scriptures and we see where God smites entire nations to the point where even women and children are killed and God ordains it. God commands it. And so Nineveh will be no different. They're going to get smited too. And Jonah's going to go tell them that they're going to get smited, except for the fact that God says to Jonah, he says, hey, he says, go tell the Ninevites that I want them to get a second chance. Jonah's like, wait a second. All throughout scriptures. In fact, I've been reading my scriptures, and scriptures clearly say, God, that you smite your enemies. And now you're telling me that i got to preach about second chances? That's a slippery slope, God. Right? Jonah hates it so much, you know what he does? He asks the people to throw him off the ship. They throw him off the ship. He doesn't want to preach it. You know the story. He gets swallowed by a fish, right? But this is how the story ends. He gets swallowed by a fish, spit back up. He has to go preach to Nineveh, and he preaches about second chances. And the Ninevites were like, whoa. Yeah, I guess we were wrong. We're sorry about that. And uh, we're thankful for the second chance. And the story ends with Jonah sulking before God under a plant, saying, God, I can't believe you would give them a second chance. That's how the book ends. You know why? Because the Bible clearly, clearly said that God smites God's enemies. Now all of a sudden, within a context and within a culture, God is humbly, courageously asking the writer of Jonah to move us forward and to evolve into a more loving God, into a more inclusive God, into a God who is gracious and does give second chances. Now you might be saying, why wouldn't God do that from the beginning of time? Well, at the beginning of time that we know recorded, we have the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, which was a time of war. Right? And so explaining that God was gracious during a time of war might be like talking about black holes and photons with two-year-olds. See what I'm doing there? I'm going to keep doing that, too. 
And so again, what God does is uses us in our culture and context and time to move us on an arc toward an ever-loving, a more powerful, a more affirming God, a more affirming scripture. It keeps happening throughout. There's this book called Hosea. In the book of Hosea, we have uh, this prophet, and he marries a woman named Gomer. Now, Gomer cheats on Hosea often, okay, Uh, all the time. And God says to Hosea, you see how Gomer is cheating on you? That's what it feels like for my people. I feel like my people are cheaters. That's, That's what it feels like. I feel like I'm being cheated on all of the time. Now, the Bible is very, very clear about what should happen to cheaters. Okay, the book of Leviticus says it. It's incredibly clear. Cheaters should be stoned to death. Okay, stoning is not just for our unruly teenagers anymore. Okay, it's for, every, it's for the, the cheaters too. Okay, so that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stone. So when they hear from the prophet Hosea that, that God says, hey, you, you are a bunch of cheaters. You are cheating on me. That would strike doom in them because the scriptures are very clear and the scriptures say that you should die if you cheat. And instead, you get this really different message. And the really different message goes like this. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea, go show love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. (laughs) If I had a dime for every time someone was baffled by the sacred raisin cakes, (laughs) I'd have a dollar. That's for another message. But anyway, what's God doing? God is saying, I know scripture says this. I know scripture says you should die if you cheat. But I'm telling you that when I get my way, when I get what I want, when scripture evolves, when it humbly evolves, the writer of Hosea says, I have the courage to say that God is a God of grace, that God is not a God of stoning and death. God is a God that wants to move us towards a more loving way of life, a more affirming way of life, a more inclusive way of life. And when you mess up, messing up is not the death sentence that it is. It's all about second chances. It's all about grace. It happens all throughout our scriptures. God moving along this arc towards greater ways to love. Then we get to Jesus. Jesus blows it all up, doesn't he? We always say that we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. So if we want to know God's character, we look at Jesus. And so we look at the people Jesus healed. He shouldn't have healed them. Look at the laws Jesus broke. Jesus should have been stoned too for those laws that he broke. We look at the people that Jesus ate with. Jesus shouldn't eat with those people. They were uh, sinners. They were bad. The Bible clearly said everything that Jesus did was a slippery slope, which is why the religious people wanted to kill him. He was heretical, right? And yet we get this really beautiful passage. It's this gorgeous passage, and it's in John, John 14, where Jesus is hanging out with the disciples. And he says to them, he says, hey, listen, I'm going away pretty soon, but I want you to know something. He says this, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Ooh, I love it. Jesus is basically saying, when you continue down this ark, the Father, my God, God, God is going to come on you, and you, you're, you're going to change this world in even greater ways than I have, because that is the way we're moving. Do you have the courage to do it? Do you have the humility to do it? Do you have the humility to say, mm, this seems like it's getting in the way of what God's up to when I exclude. Maybe it's time for me to include, because God is moving me in that direction. Do we have that courage? Y'all, that's why I'm a pastor, to be honest. 
That's why I haven't quit a long time ago, because I feel like the call of this church, the call of this church is to do the greater things that Jesus is talking about here. That is the call of our church. The call of our church is to say, hey, we have heard it said, but we believe humbly, with humility, with courage, that God is asking us to evolve, to move into a more uh, inclusive, more loving uh, way of living life. That's how God is calling us. Do we believe it? Can we do it? Do we have that courage? Do we have that humility? That is the question. So I look at Peter, right? Peter was one of the disciples. He heard that message. Peter's hanging out. He's pretty hungry one day. A sheet falls from heaven. The sheet says, Peter, eat these things. Well, Peter looks at that sheet and goes, I can't eat any of those things. And God says, no, you should eat them. And Peter says, but the Bible clearly says. What does the Bible clearly say? Do not eat any of that meat or touch their carcasses. They're unclean for you. Everything in the water that does not have fins and scales will be detestable to you. You are to detest birds. They must not be eaten because they are detestable. All four-footed animals that walk on their paws are unclean for you, right? He knows this. It's in the Bible. The Bible says, and this is what it says. And God, you're asking me to go down a slippery slope. And God says, actually, if you don't eat these things, you're going to get in the way of the work I'm trying to do. And what's the work he's trying to do? He's inviting the Gentiles in. Who are the Gentiles? Anybody from a non-Jewish background is a Gentile. And before this point... None of the Gentiles were allowed in. You know who didn't let the Gentiles in? Jesus. Peter's doing greater things. Interesting, right? And so because Peter says, okay, I know Scripture clearly says, but I want to be humble. I want the humility to move forward because I think God is working on an arc towards more love and more inclusion and more affirmation. I'm going to go ahead and let the Gentiles in. And the and Bible tells us that Peter had to go before the council. The council was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm not sure, but... With humility, I think we need to rewrite this scripture. And then his mom calls, and his mom's like, you're in a cult. You know, that kind of thing, right? Um, has anybody's mom ever called and said that to them? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> that was, yeah. Yeah, so his mom calls and says that. And then he's like, I'm, I'm going to hang out with people I've never hung out with because I humbly think I might be getting in the way of what God's up to if I don't. So he does. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to do the greater things. It's our turn to be a church that says, oh my gosh, there is an ark that through Jesus Christ we are called to bring a more loving and more gracious, a bigger God than we could ever imagine. And yes, we see what scripture says, but is it possible? Is it possible that God is still working through us through the Holy Spirit to write that over again? Because if scripture is just dead and it's 2,000 years old, then it's dead and we're all wrong. But I don't believe that. I believe our God is bigger and our God is working through us. And our God is working through this church along that arc. So what are the things I think we do, church? I'm going to say something that's going to be very surprising to you. But for the past 300 years, white Western men have held the corner on interpretation of the Bible. I, like I said, super surprising, I know. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder if we start to say, you know what, white Western men, they don't get the final say on, on the way Scripture operates. In fact, white Western men might not even be the best people to even look at Scripture right now, considering what they're up to, right? Maybe that's possible, and I fully understand the irony, right? Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's true, right? 
And I think about it, and I think about the fact that, that right now we want to hear and we are hearing, but we need to hear more from our African-American siblings and from our Caribbean siblings and from our Asian siblings and from our South Asian siblings and from our Latin siblings and everybody else in between, right? And it's time that we hear from them, and, and, and that happens when we move along this arc and say white Western men don't get the last word any longer, which means if you're like me and you're a white, white Western straight man, the way that we move forward is by taking steps back and out of power, right? That's how we move forward. Maybe that's what we start to do. I think about 150 years ago, 200 years ago, if we were to say this, it might not work, sadly. It might have been like explaining black holes. Well, you get the gist. <laughs> but we're in a place for such a time as this that God might be calling us right now to do just that. And so as a church, we're going to do two things. The two big things we're going to do are we're going to make sure that you have resources upon resources of voices that aren't white Western men. The second thing we're going to do is we're starting our anti-racist small group. Everybody come, because it's going to be super uncomfortable. And it's going to make us divided. And then it's going to make us whole. You know what else I think? I think for such a time as this, God is calling us to talk more about mental health. There's a pastor uh, last week who died by suicide. I'm not up here looking for a pity party at all. It is hard being a pastor, y'all. It is not easy. It's lonely. You carry a lot. And, um, and I think back to even five, ten years ago. Five, ten years ago where a pastor couldn't even stand up and say, I'm dealing with mental health issues. I'm dealing with depression. I'm dealing with anxiety. I mean, and I'll, I'm, I'll sit here and tell you today. I'm dealing with depression. I'm dealing with anxiety. You know, five, ten years ago, to say that you were on antidepressants would have been like, a, you know, you would have lost your job. Guess what, y'all? I'm on antidepressants. We have to start talking about this. In fact, we're in such a time and place as this that God might be asking us. God might be saying, you know what? A hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, we, we, we didn't talk about this stuff. In fact, when people said they were sad or not feeling good or whatever, we said, well, just pray. Or read scripture. Cast your cares on the Lord. Thanks a lot while I lay in bed for the next 24 hours, right? That's what it feels like. But maybe now, we're not afraid to talk about it. We're not afraid to be vulnerable. We're not afraid to say God is at work in the science. God is at work in the medication. God is at work in our doctors. God is at work in the psychiatrists. God is at work to make sure that we can live in such a way that there might be some form of stability. And to not talk about it actually does a lot of damage, right? And so when we read our scriptures, let's not read about cast your cares on the Lord, although that is a good thing. But I'm more interested in reading about Jesus in the desert and about the 40 days where Jesus feels like he's just not going to make it in this ministry. And I'm way more interested in reading about Paul, who says Paul has a thorn in his side. Well, what is that thorn in the side? That thorn in the side, I don't know, but, but, but now I identify with Paul, right? Instead of brushing over that, I'm like, actually, you can be in ministry. We can all do ministry and still struggle with our things. The thing is, we talk about it. That's how we look at Scripture now, right? How is God calling us as a church, as human beings, to move forward? Even though the Bible clearly says, but how do we move forward in such a way that we are bringing life, we are bringing love, we are bringing affirmation, we're bringing inclusion? How are we doing that? And here's the beautiful part. Every one of you in this room right now, every one of you, is part of the greater things. Whether you believe in God, whether you've been a Christian your whole life, whether you're like, I don't believe this anymore, you are part of the greater things. God is calling you to have courage. God is calling you to go, oh, wow, with humility, I humbly think we should move forward in this way because moving forward in this way is actually creating wholeness. It's creating love. It's not excluding, excluding any longer. So how do we listen to that spirit? How do we listen to that spirit that tells us 
hey, we're moving you forward into greater things. How do we listen to that spirit? Well, carefully. Taking time to be silent, for sure. And I know what y'all think about, what if I get it wrong? I'm scared, what if I get it wrong? Do we worship a God who, if we get it wrong, is like, well, you got it wrong. So long, hell for eternity. Y'all, I'm not down with that God. I don't want to worship that God. My God is infinite and unimaginable. And even when we get it wrong, it says, you know what? Good. You have grace upon grace upon grace. Just like the people in Jonah's time. Just like the people in Hosea's time. Just like the people in Jesus' time and Peter's time and in our time today. Humility is a value. You've been here for seven years. Next week's our seven-year anniversary. Recommit to that value. Recommit to saying, I have the courage to move forward the way God is asking me to move forward. I'm willing to tell others about it. Maybe you're new here. Commit to this value. Commit to this value in our church, moving forward the way God is asking us to move forward. Do you have that courage? Do you have what it takes? Because we are rewriting, and y'all get to play a part. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Thank you that you're asking us to ever evolve. Thank you that, that, that you work in our context and culture, not only in 10,000 BC, but in the 21st century. Thank you, God, that you stoop to our level, that you come down. And in this little finite time that we're here on earth, you tell us that we have a place in your kingdom where we get to move this kingdom forward. God, we thank you for that responsibility. Give us the courage to live it out with wisdom with humility, and with just advancing your kingdom in mind above all else. God, when we get it wrong, we thank you for the grace that comes our way. We pray this in your name. Amen.